Lifestyle Matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmeli and filling in for Dave Pop, which I've got Leanna Wachniak. Leanna, welcome. Nice to be here again, Faisal. Thank you for filling in for, for the other guy. This is going to be a great show. Uh, we've got some key topics. Mm -hmm. One is economics. But I think the big one is the political issues that are going to come up during the next elections here in Canada and the United States. We're going to address some of the key economic issues and, and what they're going to look like and what people need to kind of think about as we head into these two elections coming up. And what's probably the most emotional flashpoint for people when it comes to elections and what we talk about when it comes to those things. And then the other thing that we'll talk about today, which is more of a fun topic here, where can you retire somewhere warm, sunny, maybe overseas for less than $150,000? This is crazy because we've been hearing a lot about how expensive real estate is around the world. And there's some great fines for under 150k. I like that idea. You know, we've got some great uh, economic data came in this week. Uh, GDP numbers in the United States look pretty good. Canada, pretty flat. Mm -hmm. And the, the difference between the two are quite staggering. In fact, uh, to over two percent, close to two and a half percent in the United States on a on the last quarter. One percent in Canada. Mm -hmm. And when we start looking at the economic numbers, Leanna, on Canada, June is shaping up to be a contraction. Potentially, yes. A contraction. Yeah. So this is interesting. We, you know, you start when we compare the two countries. Um, even you look at interest rates of both went up. Canada went up. U.S. just put, uh, increased theirs. Europe increased theirs. So when you look at the two countries, where's your confidence level between the economics over the next? call it a couple of years or so, five years out. Um, where do you think the opportunity is? Is it in Canada or is it the United States? So from a strictly business perspective, we're looking at more strength in the economy, quote unquote, judging by just GDP numbers in the U.S. So that would be sort of the default answer to that question. Now, one, one thing I wanted to ask you about this or maybe give your opinion on is do we think that that contraction in the Canadian economy, potential contraction that we're possibly looking at for June, is that the start of the R word, the recession? The recession. Yeah, it's possible. I think I think there there is a possibility. Now let now let's kind of nail it down on really what matters. There's the economic technical term of recession, which is two negative GDP quarters in a row. That's the official technical term. But if you ask any economist or you, you just live through life as a positive 1% GDP or a negative 1% GDP, you don't feel a big difference there. So the feeling of the economic changes, I think, in this country are going to be pretty much flat. Now, province to province will be different, but generally across the country, you're not going to see great robust growth. Of course, I think Alberta, uh, based on the data, looks better than other provinces, but that doesn't mean Canada as a whole is going to do better. And so when you're looking at your portfolio, and we do have a Canadian bias for many of the portfolios that we see people wanting second opinions, have a strong Canadian bias, is that the right opportunity for you when you've got 98% of the world out there in population that can, that can contribute to the growth in their economies and their companies that they're supporting and so forth. I think there's opportunity elsewhere. And I think that's going to be a very interesting move going forward. Sure, there's value in certain companies in Canada, but I think when you look from a global perspective, it's going to be a bit of an issue. 
Well, and that's an interesting point. I mean, we live in Canada, we work in Canada, we're all so tied to the Canadian economy and what's happening, our jobs, our homes, everything is tied to the Canadian economy. One of the parts of portfolio diversification is the ability to look, that's the easiest thing where you can look outside of your own geographic region for places that maybe aren't experiencing the same economic conditions that you are. Maybe there's more opportunity in a different part of the world, a different country. That's not saying the Canadian economy is, a, is bad. That's not saying Canadian companies are bad. But if on a strict economic basis, if you look at the U.S.'s latest economic numbers versus Canada, they're in a stronger position. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you look at also chief investment officers around the world, we're fortunate enough in our, in our business uh, to have access and communication with some of the smartest people around the world. And we start asking them, how are you building your portfolio? Like, what's the asset allocation? And they tell you their percentage of the stocks versus bonds and alternatives and stuff like that. Then you start breaking down, where's the geographical location? When we speak to our, our, our uh, contacts in Europe, in Asia, and we look at their asset allocation, Rarely do we ever see Canada. And when we bring it up and say, well, what about Canada? They, they ask us the question, well, what about Canada? Either they have no data, which I don't believe, or they don't see the value in Canadian companies when they look at it from a global perspective. The U.S., generally speaking, with the contacts that we have out there, the weighting that they put in Canadian stocks is under 5%. They treat it similar to an emerging market as a percentage of their overall portfolio. But when you speak to Canadian chief investment officers, it's 15, 20, 30, 50% of the, of the portfolio. Part of it is from a tax perspective, but also when you look at it, you're saying, well, why is there so much home-based bias? Like that much where you're four times more than your counterparts just south of the border, or it's not even existing in international portfolios. If you look at pension plans, very small. And I'm speaking of Canadian pension plans. I was going to say the CPP, as, as an example, has a very, very small percentage in Canada, in Canadian stocks, which is surprising, I think, to most Canadians when they think about that. But it's very interesting to see that from, for people who manage money on a global perspective, they can go anywhere for retirees, this is what they're worried about, and they have such a small percentage in Canada. And the difference between that and the average Canadian's portfolio is stark. And it's because of that home-based bias in a lot of cases. Yeah, and I think when you, when you mention pension plans, domestic ones, like the Canadian pension plan, and you look at their portfolio, and if you get a chance, go on your favorite search engine and look this stuff up. Look at, look at um, the Ontario Municipality Pension Plan, better known as OMERS, Look at the Canadian pension plan. You want to go down south of the border, go to California. So CalPERS is their pension plan, State of Illinois' pension plan, or any other major pension plan out there in North America. The Canadian exposure is so small, almost a rounding error. Like they picked a couple of companies they like, and that's it. But everything else is outside of Canada. And when we look at the economic numbers, and we look at how Canadians treat their own portfolios, their own future pension, why are they not giving the same respect? You know, I, I, I'm curious about that. 
I, I think it's just simply a lack of knowledge of options in a lot of cases. Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I think even our industry of it, there's a bunch of advisors and portfolio managers who are not comfortable stepping outside of the Canadian border to see what else is out there. And I think we've got a great show to talk about, not just the, the, the economics in Canada, but also the opportunities of retirement on, on both sides of the border and around the world. I think I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the top places to buy a property for $150,000 or less. Would you buy a place outside of Canada for retirement? Potentially. It's, it's an option, but the question is, how much time are you going to spend there, or do you want to travel? More? That's what I keep on yeah. saying. Like I, I keep on debating this. Like, Should I buy a place, and if I do, then I kind of feel like I have to go there all the time. Now, could I rent it out and so forth? That's something we can discuss on there. But I think this is going to be an interesting conversation to have. And, of course, the elections coming up on both sides of the border over the next few years is going to be hot topics of equality or inequality, economically speaking. I think this is going to be one of the biggest election issues on both sides of the border in Canada and the United States. Mm -hmm. I think inequality of income, how the Bank of Canada, the Federal Reserve have set things up, how does it all look? I think there's going to be big, big issues coming up over the next few years when we get to these next two elections in Canada and the United States. And even if it's not addressed directly, it's going to be something that's on everybody's minds. It's an undertone underneath every policy or most of the policies that the government will talk about. So I think we have a great guest today to talk about what that looks like and what we can do about it. Yeah, you know, when you look at what's going to happen in this election piece, it's going to be, uh, you're going to hear national debt. It's going to come up, over, it's already coming up now, for sure, it's going to come up in the uh, in the in the whole political campaign. And so we've been joined with by Howard Yaris. He's the economist, professor, attorney, businessman, activist, and author of Understandable Economics. Howard, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Okay, we're going to put your economist hat on. I know you wear many hats, and let's get right into this. Now uh, we know that you're you're in the United States, but we can t also look at this from a Canadian perspective. Mm -hmm. Let's start with this whole national debt issue. How big of an issue is it for Americans, and how big of it is an issue for countries that are not the United States? Well, in Understandable Economics, I talk about how a billion sounds very much like a trillion. I've heard, I remember a congressperson mixing up the two. The difference is, is, is enormous, and I personally cannot get my head around it, and I don't think most people can. So what I do in the book is I break it down on a per-person basis. The number for Canada is very similar to the number for the United States. It's roughly $70,000 per person, per American. Now, is that a bankruptcy-inducing existential crisis, $70,000 of debt? Speak to anyone who's gone to medical school or started a business or, or bought a house for that matter. I don't think that's quite modest. It's what we do with the debt. That's what it comes down to. If you borrowed $70,000 to feed a drug habit or go on some lavish vacation that you couldn't afford, clearly it's a waste. If you spend the $70,000 on a personal level to go to medical school, well, maybe medical school isn't the best example anymore, to start a, a profitable business or, or, uh, or do something productive, that's, a, that's, that's good. And it's, so the issue comes down to what the government's doing with the money. That's what it comes down to. Is it wasting the money or is it just and just pushing the bills down for down to their, the next generation or is it productively investing? And that's what it comes down to. And is the need to pay down debt more important in countries outside of the United States because we don't have 
the, uh, the primary fiat currency of the world. Let's say the Canadian dollar is not as highly regarded as the U.S. dollar. Uh, is it more important for Canadian uh, politicians to cut down that debt than, let's say, the Americans because of that issue? No, in my opinion, simply because, it, it, as you correctly pointed out, it's a fiat currency. If the budget in Canada is tight, it can always increase the amount of money, uh, as long as there's not inflation. And that's great news. In the last few days, at least in America, inflation is really starting to abate. And the Canadian economy very much mirrors the American economy. And I'm, I'm confident that that's going to be the case in, in Canada pretty soon. So governments have wiggle room. If, if there isn't much inflation, they have some wiggle room in their, in their budgets to be a little looser with money and, and run deficits a little bigger. So that actually leads to kind of our next question. The central banks, and particularly the U.S. Fed, are right now in a position of trying to fight inflation because we have been in a fairly high inflationary environment over the last few years, or at least higher than it's been in a little bit. So can you explain maybe for a sort of basic level for people who don't know, what does the Fed actually do? And how does that affect the economy and people in general? Okay, there's a lot of misunderstanding, uh, or not even misunderstanding, there's a lack of understanding about the Fed or the, or the Canadian Central Bank. What they do is they set interest rates. That's the simplest way I could put it. They don't set interest rates the way the government sets tax rates. What they do is they buy and sell bonds to nudge market interest rates in one direction. They try to nudge them up or they try to nudge them down. In the past several months, it's more than a nudge. It's a, it's a full court press, uh, increasing interest rates from in America, essentially zero to the mid uh, five point to the five point five percent range. So they do that by buying and selling bonds in the open market. They don't set interest rates the way government sets tax set tax rates. But they have a lot of firepower to get interest rates in the range they want them. So what have they been doing the last several months? They've been rapidly increasing interest rates. So has the Canadian Central Bank. So has the European Central Bank. And what does that do? It slows spending and thereby hopefully reducing the upward pressure on prices. That's what they've been doing. Howard, we're, we're going to hear a hot topic about inequality between the have, the have not, the rich the poor, uh, the ultra-rich, and everybody else. You're going to hear the one percenters, the ten percenters, whichever number you want to use. Inequality has been around for a, as least as long as I've been alive. Um, when we talk about inequality, um, it's we believe it's soaring. At least my data says there's a wider gap than ever before. Um, is it a problem, and what can we do about it? Well, you mentioned a really important issue. You believe it's soaring. Perception, this is an overstatement. I've heard it many times. I don't know if I fully believe it, but it has some truth. Perception is actually more important than reality in these things. If people feel the economy is screwing them, they're going to act as if it's screwing them. You could show people all the statistics they want. If they feel they're losing ground, that's going to cause certain actions on their part. They're going to go to fringe parties. They're going to react in, in ways that are not very constructive. So, yes, I think there's unequivocal evidence that people feel like inequality is increasing. But objectively, which arguably is less important, yes, it has been increasing. And in the, 
in understandable economics, I talk about one powerful force creating greater inequality. And that's the very platform we're on now, the internet. If, in 1950, if you had a store in New York and wanted to set one up in Montreal, it was incredibly complicated. You had long distance phone calls, you had all sorts of hurdles. Now, Jeff Bezos with Amazon could do business in the smallest town in the most obscure country in the world and cost free. There's on a cost free platform. So it's enabled the most successful businesses to become even more successful, to monopolize markets. And so that's creating more inequality. It's, it's enabling some people like Jeff Bezos to amass more and more wealth and making it more difficult for a lot of people to have um, an ability to become a real, have a significant role in the economy. Now, Leanna, we've got like under a minute or so left. I know there's one question you, knew, you wanted to ask mm -hmm. to make sure we get it addressed today. What was that question? So the question is, and this is what we hear a lot, do tax cuts for the wealthy actually create jobs or do they just create more inequality? That's an issue I take, I hit directly in the book. And, and this is, and the point of understandable economics is, is to let people know that they don't need experts to, to inform them on these matters. They can figure it out themselves. Really quickly, if you give a wealthy person extra money, what are they going to do with it? They're probably just going to save it. If you give a lower middle income or a poor person money, what are they going to do with it? They're going to go out and spend it. And what happens when they spend it? Businesses have to produce more goods. Businesses have to hire more people. So it gets fed right back into the economy, growing the economy. So the answer to that is no. You, that's my point in the book. People have to use their common sense and not listen to politicians and the, uh, the people who give them their uh, donations. So you're in favor of tax cuts for the middle class, but not tax cuts for the rich. Yes, and that's a political judgment. We as a society have to decide who gets what buying power. Um, and, and you need a differential buying power to incent people to work. But ultimately, that we have to look at our taxes and, and make a, a value judgment. You cannot plug numbers into a formula and get a right answer for this. A value judgment has to be made as to what the appropriate tax rate should be. And someone may conclude it's too low. Someone like myself may, uh, like myself may conclude it's too low. Some may, someone may conclude it's too high. But the point is there's no objective answer. It's a value judgment that has to be made. It cannot be outsourced to economists. It's something we, through our democracy, have to decide what is appropriate. We can do this on and on. Howard, unfortunately, we're running out of time. <laughs> I want to thank you so much. We've been joined by Howard Yaris, economist, professor, attorney, businessman, activist, and the author of Understandable Economics. Liana, retiring is fun. Retiring in a different country, at least owning a home there where you can make it your winter home for us Canadians. Mm -hmm. Sounds pretty interesting, too. Sounds fantastic. Okay, my question for you, Liana. You've got a choice. Anywhere, Europe, Asia, South America, where would you buy your retirement, your, your, your vacation property for your retirement? I think I'd probably buy my vacation property in Europe somewhere. Fantastic. Yeah, Europe is you. very popular. Mm -hmm. I would lean more to like your Caribbean, South America style, somewhere close to home still. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think these are, these are areas that we've seen in, in uh, a trend. We got, there's the editor of Real Estate Trend Alert, and they're telling us that there are a whole bunch of locations where you can buy retirement homes for under 
$150,000. I can't wait to hear about it. Well, we've got Ronan McMahon. He's the editor of Real Estate Trend Alert. Ronan, welcome to the show. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, let all of our listeners and viewers know, where are you at this point in time? Because it's a beautiful location right behind you. Um, I'm in Cork, Ireland. I'm on my summer vacations in my hometown of Cork, Cork, Ireland. Um, I live the spring and the fall in um, on the beach just north of Lisbon in, in Portugal. And winters, I head to Cabo San Lucas. So, you know, I'm living proof that you know, it's very affordable and achievable to have, you know, a home or multiple homes and bases to just be in various places at the best time of the year to, to, to be there. So, you know, that's my guiding philosophy. That's why I'm in Ireland this time of year, but for sure not in Ireland in January and February. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds incredible. And for all of our listeners, You've kind of put together this list of these top places to retire, but what makes a what makes a place a good place to retire to buy property in and retire to? So I, I suppose there, there's multiple kind of layers to that. You know, from from the real estate perspective, there's going to be what can you get in terms of you know your bang for your buck what does that 150 or 250 or whatever the the number buy you there's you know what are your holding costs going to be and um, what are your property taxes your insurances um, and then there's the cost of of living you know how 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 rich and accessible you know is wonderful food wonderful experiences and the thing is you know when you go to other parts of the world you know they just absolutely you know that the value you can get is 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 quite astonishing you know just to maybe start at the the least sexy part of it you know some of the properties i list in my report you know you're talking about annual holding costs you know include all your taxes all your insurances everything you know even even hoas if if there is hoa all of that can be you know under 5 to to $700 per year. I mean literally nothing compared to to what you what you guys pay in Canada. And then you know there's there's the perception that when you know people from far away fields think of a second home in somewhere like France or, or Italy, you know they're thinking big ticket prices. They're thinking kind of George Clooney real estate and George Clooney set. Now of course that all exists and you know you can find yourself a 75 million dollar apartment in venice or a hundred million chateau in in france or in 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 the loire valley but if you're willing to go a bit off the beaten track you can just find wonderful homes you know with gardens with fruit trees with a water supply close to a village close to a bakery you know at those sticker prices of $150,000 are less. So, Rona, we're going to it, kick it off with the top three of your, 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 your hits on this list. There's eight on this report. Anybody wants to get the report, we can connect them with it so they can, they can look at the entire report. But let's go on a countdown. Number three, top location for uh, your okay, picks on so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So n- number three for sure would be would be Umbria in 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 Italy. You know, just this is a place you have you have 
you have relatively easy accessibility to Rome. You've beautiful rolling countryside. You've proximity to beach. You've amazing food, and you just have just these beautiful hill towns, and you just have incredible, you know, just incredible bang bang for your buck. How about number two? Number two would be. That would be somewhere in southwest France, probably Languedoc. Um, there I'd look for a south-facing village valley property. This is a part of the world where these microclimates are really, really important because you're a bit further north than my other places, so you want to be getting that blast of, of spring sunshine. Again, you know, you've proximity to major cities like Montpellier, which is like a, a second Paris, which is an absolutely fabulous city. Proximity to beach, skiing, I'm a golfer. There's plenty of great golf and incredible real estate values, like like really, really pretty stone cottages that you can buy there in need of a bit of, of attention, but within that kind of price bracket. And number one? Number one would be I'm, I'm, I'm a Portugal guy at heart. That's where I've chosen to make my home. Admittedly, I've made my home in a in a beach community, true beachfront, where you know where you won't get a foothold for a hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But if you move about forty five minutes inland from me into the Coimbra area, um, you can buy just either a fabulous farmhouse on an acre or two with fruit trees proximity to Coimbra which they call the Oxford of Portugal um, it's an ancient university city UNESCO World Heritage Site Lisbon is an hour and a half so- south Porto two hours north you're in the midst of beautiful countryside easy access to amazing metropolitan areas and just an incredible real estate values and an incredibly low cost of living so that would be my number one at a at a stretch we have about a minute left to go or so how easy is it for a canadian to buy a property in your top three areas italy france and portugal um, very, very easy. Um, first of all, Portugal probably easiest. The bureaucracy there is a bit less heavy than, say, the the the, the Italian bureaucracy, but really easy, really straightforward. Just You just need to be patient. Let's say this time of year you wanted to do some business in an Italian t- town hall, they'd pretty much say to you, come back to, come back to me in September. So once you embrace these challenges um, you need to get a, a competent and reliable local attorney that's the big thing follow the rules foreigners sometimes come and think yeah I'm going to kind of bend the rules a bit here don't it will it will backfire on you it won't be appreciated but get a good lawyer take your time follow the steps and it's no more complicated than buying at home and that's great advice great tips from Rona McMahon, uh, McMahon. he's the editor of Real Estate Trend Alert. How do they get a hold of more of your alerts and information, Ronan? Yeah, c- come visit me on my website, um, ronanmcmahon.com. Um, I've recently, uh, my, my most recent book, you can download the, the first chapter of, of, of that for free. And, and I also have some other articles up there. So that, that would be the best starting point.
Thank you for joining us today, Ron. Thank you so much for having me. I think we need to chat about one thing that we, uh, we've seen a trend in happening this year um, when it comes to people and their portfolios. So before the break, I was talking about, you know, these are the things that financial institutions are not going to tell you about your investments. Mm-hmm. And I think the one key thing that people have to understand, there's, there's no benefit in discussing risk, only return. Well, that's the thought. That's, that's what gets advertised. You, you can earn X percent. And that's, that is full stop, the only thing that we hear about. But what, do you, what kind of risk do you have to take on to earn that percent is a question that I don't think gets asked often enough. And then the other question is, risk is actually quite a difficult concept to either break down into numbers or break down in a meaningful way. So then the other question becomes, how do you do that? So maybe let's start with the risk versus return question mark. We know that you have to take on some level of risk in order to earn return in your portfolio. That's what you're rewarded for. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so when when it comes to risk, it's we'll use the word volatility. There, there are multiple risks that we can identify. One is 100% loss of capital. Let's take that off the table for a second. Let's assume that when an investor is going in, uh, they are not looking at that there is a risk of 100% loss of their capital. Let's take that off. Uh, let's talk about volatility. And I think this is where the lion's share of the industry is headed. We have already started to see more and more investments, portfolios, Money managers talk about their rates of return. Um, and, I'll, and we've pulled off a couple of well-known, well-managed, phenomenal portfolio managers in this country. And I've got the data in my hand. And I'll give you an example. We'll call it Portfolio 1 versus Portfolio 2 over the last 10 years. Portfolio 1 has an 8% average annual rate of return. Portfolio 2 has a 10% average annual rate of return. 10 is better than 8. Take the 10. If you were, if that's the only information you're given, the logical thing would be to say, well, give me the 10% return. That's what I'm looking for. And that's all they're going to be given. Because when you're trying to promote your product, when you're trying to promote your portfolio or yourself, you always talk about your performance. You don't talk about the risks you have to take or willing to accept in order to have that performance. So we did some digging. Mm-hmm. And let me go into this. Portfolio 1 has a rate of return of 8% on average over the last 10 years. Portfolio 2 is 10%. Portfolio 1, which has lower rate of return, the volatility or risk you need to be willing to accept is 10% swings. So you need to be willing to accept around a $100,000 drop for every million dollars you invest. If you want 2% more, you have to be willing to take in portfolio number two, 15 to 16% swings. So if you have a million dollars, now it's a $150,000 drop. We know, and we've been doing this for a long time, when people make money, they speak in percent. When they lose money, they speak in dollars. So that's why I'm bringing up the dollars. 
And I wish that our industry, at some point in the near future, puts the risk metric up. And they say, we did, if I was portfolio number two, 10% average rate of return, but you need to take on a 15% risk or $150,000 per million. And portfolio one then can say 8% rate of return with $100,000 risk or 10%. You decide which one you want based on that risk tolerance level. Well, and the interesting thing is, I think one of the reasons that a lot of advisors don't show people that is because that's a measure of, the measure of risk, there are several measures of risk, but one of those is standard deviation. It's complicated to explain, the math is complicated behind it, the formula is long and intimidating for a lot of people, and so it's very difficult to conceptualize for most people. When you say 10% volatility, 10% downside risk, something like that, what does that actually mean for me in dollar figures? If you actually break that down and say, on my portfolio of a million dollars, this is what this could mean for me in any given year, I could see on average a $100,000 loss Am I comfortable with that? It allows people to actually do the gut check properly. Correct. Where they can actually say, can I sleep at night with that potential? And Leanna, I believe that most of our peers in the industry don't even know what their volatility of their portfolios are. Potentially. Unless they're given that data from their firm and they take that information and they use it as part of their portfolio construction, I don't think they really know. I have peers in the industry, friends, run their own portfolios, and I ask them, what's your, what's your risk matrix, what's your volatility? And they look at me going, what? what? I don't know that number. Like, you haven't memorized how much risk you're taking for your clients? No. I just buy on the quality of the company. So you could take 15, 20, 30% risks? Yep. And you're okay with that? Yep. Are your clients? Don't know. Well, they're focused on performance over time. That's the number that they're really looking at is that return number. And whatever it takes them to get to that return number is what they'll do, which for some clients might be fine. And then it becomes a feedback loop from the clients. If you've got clients calling you going, I'm not comfortable with where my portfolio is today, that's when they go, well, maybe I should take some of the riskier stuff out of your portfolio. But then the question becomes, is that right for all of your clients. And for us in particular, because we focus on retirement, because we work with people who are retiring or approaching retirement, they are not able to absorb that level of risk over time. So that's, it, that's also part of the question. Where are you in your life? Are you comfortable? Do you have a long enough time horizon that to say, it's okay, I've got 30 years for this thing to come back if it takes a 15, 20% drop? And it's not only what are you comfortable with, that gut check, it's also what's realistic in your financial situation. Because if you take a 15% drop or a 10% drop, how long will it take you to recover? Because you will need those assets in the future. The longer the recovery rate, the less chance of you having a successful retirement, so it'll last throughout your retirement. That's, that's the key thing. You may be comfortable that you can take a whole bunch of volatility but that may not be suitable for your situation. Well, exactly. And 
because we only have a couple minutes left, that actually brings up a good point about risk and risky or non-risky assets. GICs are a big conversation these days. Correct. Rates are great. But what are the risks that people don't think about with GICs? I actually had a person that came in and said, I want to buy GICs, what do you think? And I'm like, that's an option. It's completely on the table. So let's put all the risks of owning GICs on the table. And they looked at me and said, it's risk-free. I said, aha. So how long of a, G of a GIC are you going to buy? You're going to buy a 100-year GIC? There's no such thing. Okay, so what's the time frame, the term? Oh, let's go three years because that's the highest rate, and then it starts to fall after three years. Okay, so what happens after three years? Well, I don't know. Whatever the rates are, the rates are. So reinvestment risk is an issue. Yeah? Yes. Okay. Are you only going to live off the interest? Yes. So let's say it's 5% and you got your million dollars, you're making 50000 What if you need an extra $1,000? Where are you going to get it from? Ooh. Access to capital risk. Right there. And then, is it the most tax efficient? So you're going to be put on a fixed budget with no access to capital, with the least tax advantage, and you're telling me there's no risk of investing in a GIC? Sure there is. You just have to be aware of what they are, and do they fit your, your circumstance. Well, and I, that's exactly the point, I think. Ultimately, it doesn't really matter which product that you go to. It has to suit your situation. That's the important piece. Of course, at any time that you were talking about portfolios, risk, returns, products like GICs and so forth, make sure you get the proper financial advice before you go ahead with any investment strategy and we're going to talk about our investment strategy at our upcoming seminar. That's right. Join us on Tuesday, August 15th, 7 p.m. live in person at the Carriage House Inn here in Calgary. Now, you do need to register, so please go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register, and we hope to see you there. We will see you there, and on behalf of Leanna and myself, Faisal, thank you for joining us on More Than Money on QR Calgary. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.